Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to the Deeper Roots podcast with our Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Abdullah Hakim Quick, and myself, Uthman Quick. So, Sheikh, we're, uh, we're talking after a big journey for you to Nigeria for Sheikh Uthman Danfodia Week. And also, you gave a khutbah just this past Friday at the uh, Islamic Institute of Toronto about this topic and about the sheikh. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the journey and about the sheikh as well. I think some people describe him as one of the most important scholars that nobody knows about. <laughs> and so give us a summary of, of the sheikh's life. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Man Denfodio, they would call him Shehu. He was a Fulani man, or the Fula, Fulbe. And they, the Fulbe originate in uh, West Africa, around the area of Senegal and, you know, the, the Futa Jalan, Futa Toro area, they, 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 they come from that region there. And they are nomadic people. And so they move along. You'll find Fulani people all the way across West Africa to the Sudan. And they move with cattle. So they're nomadic people, and their people travel from community to community with their cows, and they give manure and, and meat and milk and then they get their agricultural products you know from the people from the farmers so it's sort of, it's, it's that type of symbiosis that they have you know in their lifestyles there so the Fulanis are a movement people now amongst the Fulanis a scholarly group came up uh, they called Toradbe or Torankawa and this is a, a section of the Fulanis who focused on Islamic studies and they are part of the Maliki tradition, <clears throat> going back right to the 11th century of the Murabitun and the great movements. They're part of that Maliki tradition. And so they became scholarly clans. So, you know, you'd see a huge clan coming. Part of the clan is business. They're dealing with cows. They're dealing with milk and, you know, meat and whatnot. But one section of us scholars, pure scholars. They're business people as well, but they're scholars. And so they, they focus as they move on Islamic studies. So his name is in, in Fula, they would say Usman Dan Fodio. And Dan Fodio means Ibn uh, Alim. He is the son of a scholar. That's what it means in their language. Because his father was a scholar, his mother was a scholar, his uncles were scholars. All of his inner family were actually expert in different aspects. So his early memorization of the Qur'an, studying fiqh, hadith, came from scholars close within his clan, and then also the Tawarek. So these are the people who the men wear the veil. From the Tawarek there were scholars as well, and there were scholars coming from Timbuktu, uh, and also what is now Mauritania, right? These are all the desert, you know, scholars coming there. <clears throat> and so he was part of that tradition. So at 20 years old, he went into the field and he began to preach. So for 30 years, he traveled around Hausa land, which is a huge territory. And he was teaching people. He would um, speak in the language of the people. They speak Hausa. So he would, give, he would do poetry in Hausa. And also Fufulde, which is the Fulani language. And also Tamashek, one of the dialects of the Tuareg um, Berber language. So he would do poetry, go to the marketplace, speak to the people in their language. And when he came amongst the ulama, then he would use Arabic. 
because he was totally fluent in Arabic. He wrote in Arabic, and um, they would share their information in Arabic. And so it was during this period that he confronted the bad customs of the people. He dealt with bid'ah. I mean, you would think bid'ah only comes from people out of, you know, Abdul Wahab or whatever. But no, he wrote a book called Ihya al-Sunnah wa Ikhmad al-Bid'ah. It is the reviving the Sunnah, the way of the Prophet, and the destruction of innovations. Mm -hmm. That is his greatest book. And that was, was the basis of, a lot of my study. Because what he was dealing with was the wrong cultural practices, the separation between culture and Islam. And that's with every race. You see, Indo-Pakistanis Indo have cultural practices. Arabs have cultural practices. You see, that are not Islamic. So that's what he was doing. But I looked at it from the point of social intellectual history. He was influencing the minds and the culture of the people, bringing them to Islam. But he was getting them away from bad habits, superstitions, um, weak practices, unhygienic activities. Surprisingly enough, this is the 18th century, mm. he was against female circumcision, which is a big thing now in the Sudan and Africa, right? He was against it, and he brought proof against female circumcision. And that is heavy. Nobody would ever consider somebody back then, but he was actually stopping the what they call FGM today, female genital mutilation. He was stopping that within the communities. So how does that develop in a scholar in, in that time? Like what is what is his uh, scholarly trajectory in terms of, you know, the formation of his uh, his outlook and, and his ability to, to go back to the original sources? Where does that all come from? So he, he is a person, he's in Dawa. He's not the type of a scholar who just sits in the mosque. He, he was like a, a, a activist. So he was going to the people, seeing their problems, and bringing Islamic solutions to their problems. And he would travel from place to place. And his followers started to build until he reached a point where he had a thousand students that were traveling with him. It was like a traveling university. And so whenever he deals with a problem, and you'll see in his book, Ihya Sunnah, he'll deal with a problem, for instance, in Tahara. And he'll deal with the fact that, you know, when men are cleaning themselves, they, they tend to go to extremes and whatever. He brings what the sunnah is. How do you make wudu? How do you do ablution and whatever? He brings the proof. Quran, sunnah, ijma. This is how he always talks in the language of a faqih, one of a jurisprudent. And so, but it was real. It wasn't just theoretical Islam. It was real Islam. So by the end of the 30-year period, he had a reputation all over that Hausa land region, which is now northern Nigeria and sections right to the Cameroons, Niger. It's not just Nigeria. It's a huge swath of territory. And the Hausa people, that's one of the largest ethnic groups in West Africa. It's the Hausa. So Hausa Fulani. So the Fulanis is a large ethnic group. And so the Hausa ad adopted him. He, he, they became his greatest supporters. So it was sort of a mixing of the Hausa and the Fulani. And it reached the point where the kings, the rulers, who had accepted Islam, Islam came way back you know, in the 14th, 15th century. It had reached Kano. It was already there. But only the upper class were Muslims. They kept the people in superstition. And, and they taxed the people. 
and they you know the king would have a hundred wives and things like this so what Sheikh was doing was he was literally reviving Islam and he was reforming the society itself so the upper class people they attacked him they were against him and, and so this is how his movement develops he is just a scholar but his movement develops to the point where he is attacked and uh, <clears throat> where it reaches a climax in brief in 1788 one of the leaders from Gobert his name is Bawa so he invited the sheikh to Eid al-Adha with ulama with him and he tried to assassinate Sheikh Uthman but the assassination according to some sources it, it, it failed the assassination failed and then he tried to bribe him okay and now that sounds like today what happens in the Muslim world it's either mass repression or mass bribery it's a similar process you'll see so uh, Sheikh Uthman said I don't want your money I have five demands and this is one of the points that I discussed when I was in Sokoto, and this is what we discuss in America as well. What were his five demands? Did he want to be able to make wudu? What? No. He said, I want to be able to call to Islam freely within your territories. Two, anybody who accepts Islam should not be forced to leave Islam. They should be free to practice their Islam. Three, anybody who wears a turban a man or the woman wears hijab, they should be respected. Look how relevant that is today, right? Mm -hmm. Look what's happened in Quebec, in France, where they're banning hijab. He was saying, no, my demand is anybody who wears Islamic clothes appears should be given respect. Next, free all political prisoners. Now, this is a heavy point to us today. And I reminded the people there that we are studying this. We, we had a, a study circle or a Zoom meeting of Afro-American imams. Big imams were together. And they were looking for... I brought these five points. Free all political prisoners. There are more African-Americans in jail today in America than in, at the height of the apartheid regime in South Africa. It's a prison state. So that's... He, as an Islamic scholar, is talking about free all political prisoners. And the fifth point, lift the unjust taxes off the masses of the people. So this is what socialists would like, Marxist-Leninists, right? This is economy. So when a scholar starts talking about economic things, you're really getting to the heart of the society. Yeah. So the king attacked, and they brought their forces, and it was like a battle of Beda. The Tushek retreated, and his people circled around him, and they took Bayah, the pledge, and made him the emir. He was not emir before. He was just a teacher. But they, gave, they wanted him to be the emir, emir al-mu'minin. And they took a pledge to him, and they defeated their enemies, and they continued. And, and, and the, the scholars, the students from different sections of what is now Nigeria, he gave them a flag, and they went to their areas. They opened up 250,000 square kilometers. That was all within what they call Sokoto Caliphate. Mm -hmm. According to Murray Last, who was a European British scholar, good scholar, he wrote a book, Sokoto Caliphate. The Nigerians respect him. And he made the statement. He said, This was the largest political entity at the time on the African continent. Wow. So look about a place that nobody knows about, right? Yeah. It was the largest polity 
political entity on the African continent. And they governed it because all of the governors, the leaders were scholars, they could speak Arabic, so they communicated in Arabic and, and in their local languages, and they governed for a hundred years till the time of the coming of the British. Now, what happened to the Shackworth men? Once they consolidated their uh, power, he then gathered the shura together, the, the, the consultative committee, and he said, I am going to step down as the leader. I want you to choose your leader now. Okay, because I'm not a political leader. And he stepped down, and they ended up choosing uh, his son, Muhammad Bello, who was a great leader and a great scholar and whatnot. And they chose him as the emir. And Shekhoth man retired to a village uh, where he prepared scholars on a higher level of spirituality and leadership. And he continued to teach until his death. And you know what's amazing? He died at 63 years old, just like wow. the Prophet Muhammad wow. He loved the sunnah so much that Allah even allowed him to have the same lifespan, lifespan as Rasulullah mm. So this is the scholar now. He influences people all over the region. To the point where one of the, you know, you talk about Tijani movement, which is so famous in Senegal and whatnot. Mm. The leader of the Tijanis, Haju Matal, he was a Fulani too. And he traveled to Mecca. And on his way back, you know, he, he picked up the Tijani uh, teachings, then went to Morocco. And then on his way back, he stayed in Sokoto. And he married the great-great-granddaughter of Shekhoth Mandanfodio. And he was influenced by his teachings as well. So all of the major movements were influenced uh, by the Sheikh. But because of the colonial period, the British with their weapons and whatnot, and using the southerners, Igbos, and Yorubas against the north, right? They, they defeated them militarily, right? But they allowed, it was such a strong political entity, the British were cunning enough to say, leave the entity. And so we'll leave it there as an entity with emirs, but these emirs have to be, um, uh, they have to report to us. We have the political power, the economic power, but they can maintain their personal Islamic law. They can maintain their culture, but we will have political law and we will economically control. So this is how the British controlled the north. And then they came together with the Yoruba states in the south. There's Oyo and then the Igbo states in the south, and they put it all together to make present-day Nigeria. Hmm. What is really so profound is the idea that a, a scholar can then become a, a leader, an emir. And the, if you look at what you know, what's happening today in the world, the idea that the leader should be the best from amongst us, and That's not. Right the worst or the richest or the most charismatic or or, or uh, influential back uh, in and to talk a little bit more about the sheikh's relationship with the british and how did that leave a legacy you, you know after the sheikh and uh and then how do you think that influences nigeria's uh, current state well what what happened is is that they were able to defeat at that time the petty rulers so remember now, you're dealing, 1804 is when the jihad happened, in 1810 they consolidated themselves. So this is before the British came, because the whole colonial period comes about like in the 1880s when they had the Berlin Conference and then they, the, the, the European powers divided up, you know, areas of influence 
Italians, Germans, French, you know, British, and then they went about using their weapons and whatever to colonize. This is before that time. But they established a solid entity, and that continued to rule. And so there's no compromise with un-Islamic forces to be ruling them. That was totally against Shekhar man's teachings. But he predicted that what is called Zaman al-Nasara, he wrote about the time when the Christians would come and when Muslims would lose rule. And he said, if you cannot hold your rule, then you should make migration east and you should go to the Mahdi. He's dealing with Islamic sources now because there's going to be a Mahdi who will come. And if you can't hold there, go east, join the Mahdi, wait for the Mahdi to come, you know, for the major wars that are coming near the end of time. So the British then, when they came with their Gatlin guns and using other nations against the Muslims, they were able to defeat the last Sultan uh, Khalifa At-Tahiru. So At-Tahiru, but his position was the position of Sheikh Uthman Danfodio, no compromise. But there was some amongst him, Wazir Bukhari and these other uh, leaders, they said, we can compromise with the British They'll allow us to have personal law and, you know, at least we're not totally wiped out. It's sort of like in America, you have Booker T. Washington, who believed in working with the slave masters, education, education, education. In India, they have Sayyid Ahmed Khan. He did the same thing with the British. It's a pragmatic position where you get involved in education, you leave politics out of your mind, and you survive. So uh, a group... Uh, the Sultan uh, Tahiru, uh, he fought to his death. But, you know, his flag was carried east. And there is a group of the Hausa Fulani people who live in the Blue Nile region in the Sudan. And they're known as Hausa in the Sudan. And they live there up until today. They thought the Mahdi was coming. Muhammad Ahmed did appear. But he's not the Mahdi. So they're still waiting for a Mahdi figure to come there in the east. And so that's a Sultan there. And then, but the Sultan of Sokoto is the one that the British actually um, allowed, you know, to survive within this region, and that continued. And the Sultan is the highest religious authority, you know, in Nigeria. And now there is a relationship between the, the lineage in the Sudan and the lineage in Nigeria. So they recognize each other. There's no hostility. They're, they're trying to revive it now, you know, to come back any way they possibly can. Uh, to come back. And, and the Sultan, um, present Sultan, um, Sultan Muhammad Saad Abu Bakr, he is the highest religious authority in Nigeria, and I would say one of the highest on the African continent right now. Um, recently, when I was in touch with him, he was trying to decide whether to travel to this big conference in Bahrain with the Pope and other people like that. Whenever the major religious figures come and they want an African representative, they will call in the Sultan. Because that's the level of his prominence. You know, um, because Nigeria, of course, after Egypt, it, it's the second largest Muslim population on the African continent. And it is growing leaps and bounds. It has so much potential. So there's so much in Nigeria. And he is the highest religious authority amongst the Muslims of Nigeria, who uh, I believe they still make up the majority uh, of Nigeria. And the present leader of Nigeria, uh, uh, Buhari, he's from Sokoto. He's from the okay. same area. right? So they still hold great influence. But Nigeria is a federal state. 
It's a secular state, and it combines the Yoruba tradition, the Igbos, and so many other nations that are in there under secular law. Of course, this is a formula that would never be able to stay united. The British knew that. Because Sokoto was a separate thing. Oyo in the south, you know, there was Yoruba state, there was Igbo state. So they put them all together and say you're a federal state. But they're always going to be sort of against each other, in a sense, because they're really three separate entities. Um, but the Muslims still have great influence. Um, but you know what? You know what is strange? Whenever you mention Nigerians in um, Canada or America, you usually think about Nigerian hustlers. You think about people who are doing schemes. You think about these negative images, right? Although Nigerians win so many great awards, there's so many geniuses. Harvard University, the Nigerians. But the house on Fulanis, for the most part, they don't travel out their lands. The, the, most of the Nigerians who travel to the West are Igbos and Yoruba. Those are the ones you don't meet, house on Fulani, because they're satisfied within their lands, and they live, they, they're still practicing their Islam, they have their sultan, they, they have their Islamic practices, uh, and, and, and they stay there. But, of course, they have a great influence. And the present sultan, Muhammad Saad Abu Bakr, he was a general in the Nigerian army. He was trained, did some of his training in Toronto, Canada, and in, in, in London, I believe. He was a general, so he's a military man as well. But, but he carried you know, that lineage that is there. He's a religious man as well. And so, you know, he's now was chosen to be, you know, to come up, you know, to, to take over uh, when the previous sultan uh, was finished with his time. So let's talk about the trip. Um, and, uh, you know, you were honored to be invited for this uh, event, the Sheikh Othman Danfodio Week. And uh, what was it like for you, you know, after, I think it's, it's quite a few years since you were in Nigeria. That's right. Yes, um, one of my colleagues, um, Dr. Usman Bugaji, he's a Nigerian scholar who studied in the Sudan and UK, and he was one of the Islam in Africa officials as well. So we have been in touch with each other, and he's he works with the Sultan, um, and they have developed what is called Sheikh Uthman Danfodio Week. So for the last eight years, this is number nine, they have a whole week of celebrations, of lectures, of they have night vigils, they have television programs, radio programs. They're reviving the teachings of the Sheikh. And this is amazing because young people are involved. Um, and most of the activities are filled with young students. So they're now reviving his name and trying to bring back their traditions and make it a reality. Now the work that I had done on the first 30 years of the Sheikh's life, I received a PhD from the University of Toronto, which is one of the most distinguished universities in Canada and in the West. And so they knew about the work you know, that I had done. And uh, so they invited me to come uh, to Nigeria. I was in Turkey doing another program with the DNAT, and it was three in the morning and I got a phone call. And um, the person said, uh, I'm the Sultan of Sokoto. You know, I almost fainted like it's three in the morning, man. It's the Sultan talking to me, right? And you know, he, they speak English completely. He's a very you know, friendly person. And he said, you know, would you like to come to Nigeria? You know, we'd like to host you to come. And I said, I'd be honored to do this. This is a fulfillment of a dream. You know, as an African-American, we've lost our roots and our lineage and our touch with Africa. 
and you're honoring me to come back. To, to This is amazing. I'll definitely come. So the Sultan then arranged for me to travel there. And he did it in such a way that I would be the keynote speaker in the closing ceremony. And, and this was a great honor because the Emir of Kano was there and you'll see pictures of them with their bodyguards and you know all of the ulama are there. And, and then you look at the crowd and you'll see 50% are students. The girls are all in hijab. You know, it's a feast for, you know, Islamic culture. And we saw a lot of that on your uh, your Instagram, uh, you know, over the last few weeks when you were there. Right. So so, so it, it was a feast. So they honored me. And basically, my topic was the living legacy of Shekhoth Mandanfodio in the Americas. So what is the living legacy? So, so I presented to them the fact that during the slavery period, we have recognized that somewhere between 15 and 30 percent of the enslaved Africans in the West were Muslims. And we identified a number of places where there were Fulanis there and there were uh, Mandingos. And in Jamaica, uh, it was identified that a great slave rebellion in 1821, uh, the basis of it was a, a document called Wathika. And that's similar to Wathika ibn Fudi ila uh, Jami Ahl Sudan. So this is his declaration of independence. The Sheikh made a declaration of independence to resist evil. And so what appears, and we're trying to finalize this, that the slaves in Jamaica, the same spirit of resistance uh, they, they, were, they were using, and they revolted. Massive slave revolt uh, there in the Manchester Parish in Jamaica. And so all over the region there were, there were revolts, um, different nations, African nations, and the Muslims were very much involved. And what has recently happened is because of this coming together of the need of Afro-Americans, and I mean Caribbean, South America, wherever it is, Canada, because of the coming together of the need for self-identity, mm -hmm. roots, what I call roots. That's why my book is called Deeper Roots. We want to go deeper. We don't, we don't want to just say, I'm African. Where do I come from in Africa? So we do a DNA study. Many people find out, many of my close friends are saying like, I didn't know I'm 60% Fulani. Hmm. I'm Mandingo. They're now identifying their tribes. Okay? So that desire to come together, plus the, 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 the need to revive Islam, it, it's now coming together where Afro-Americans are realizing that one of the treasure chests in African Islam is the teachings of Shekhoth Mandanfodio. He wrote 150 books. So you have a lot of information to go to. And, and they were practical books, not theoretical. He was dealing with the issues at the time. Whenever there was an issue, he would write about it and, and give the solutions to his followers. And many of them are parallel to what we are facing uh, today. So this is what I had discussed with them, which they, alhamdulillah, they really you know, loved it and they you know, you know, really uh, thanked me for coming and I was greatly honored you know, by this, um, by being in their presence. Uh, but the teachings are now spreading. And it's very important now, you know, for people to study Shekhoth Mandanfodio and to see some of the great wisdoms uh, that came out of him. This, um, and again, it's, it's in line with the other great scholars in Islamic history. It's not outside of Islamic history. But the difference is, it's applied to Africa. So the same way Imam al-Ghazali 
his dealing in Baghdad and his dealing in Isfahan and under the Seljuks, Nizamiya, he's dealing at that time. He applies Islam there at that time. Imam Suyuti, the great Egyptian scholar, he's applying Islam in Egypt, right? So you'll see scholars all over the world. So this is now a same scholar from the same trends, Quran and Sunnah, right, who applies it to an African entity. And some of the African practices we actually carry with us. It's part of our um, culture that we carry. So he applied Islam to the African continent. And so that, that gives us sort of a closeness. And it, it even gives us sort of a lineage. like mm -hmm. it, It's like a personal connection with the scholar, with the people. And that's important you know, for our people today um, when we are coming into our consciousness. You see the whole... Prob, you know, discussions going on about Hebrews and, you know, are we Egyptians or, you know, what are we? Every African-American wants to know what he is, right? Yeah. This is solid scholarship. This is the real solid scholarship. It's not mystical. It's not made up. Hebrews to Negroes. Right. Hebrew is not. This is documented evidence that we have. We can trace it to the person, right? We can trace our lineage through the slave ports, that are coming in. Because if you look at many of the famous African-Americans who are discussed, like Umar bin Said, who, who wrote his biography in Arabic, you look at Yaro Mahmud, these are famous, you see pictures of them. You look closely at them, they're Fulanis. If you look at uh, Abdurrahman, the famous in Mississippi, Prince Among Slaves, he's a Fulani. Right? So this is direct lineage that, that, that we're actually connecting now uh, there and it's 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 exciting, you know, when you see something yeah. like this. I think this is what Kyrie is really looking for, right? <laughs> That's right. I mean, we we need to get Kyrie out of the fantasy world, you know, and into like some solid scholarship, you know, something that has roots and has connections with people, you know, who are actually there now, who will receive you. Mm -hmm. They will receive you as one of their lost children. That's what Kyrie needs, yeah. and all the different people, Kanye, and all the people who are involved in embroiled in this we need some you know some sane type of down-to-earth uh, teachings you know that can be used in a practical sense and connected directly to the African continent I did notice I did see on your social media you posted you were giving Shahada to a to a young brother there it was a very touching moment I think and and uh, for you does that really represent the young people there looking towards Islam as a solution, as as a way to, to guide them through many of the challenges that we're facing? Yes. Um, when Muslims practice Islam and they reach out to other communities, there's a natural reaction that comes. And I was uh, in Abuja when I had first landed. It was the second day. And so they invited me to Masjid Noor, which is one of the large masjids there in the capital to deliver a talk on Islam in the West between Maghrib Salat and Isha Salat. And then after that, you know, from the group came a person who wanted to embrace Islam. So like that was amazing. You know, and, and, and that and that's something that's happening. There's been some struggle between Christians and Muslims in Nigeria, but still that has been toned down. And there's a lot of room, you know, for connections and because Islam naturally stands out. And and if people go beyond their tribal affiliations, 
you know, and their desire for money, then they can see that Islam stands clear from falsehood. And so Alhamdulillah, so that shows this great potential there in Nigeria. You know, Nigeria, if they continue to grow at the pace that they grow, just their birth rate, they're going to be within the top five countries in the world within the next few decades as far as the number of people mm -hmm. in their country. It's the top GDP in the African continent. That's right. Well. Yeah. And in terms of scholars, great Nigerian scholars, uh, their youth have an amazing potential. And you'll see them in the UK, you'll see them in America, so many uh, Nigerians who are doing so well. So they have great potential, but they need to get out of the confusion. There's been a lot of division that's been sowed by the colonial powers up until today to keep them divided and to keep them destabilized. This whole Boko Haram thing, you know, is one of those made-up uh, issues, you know, like the ISIS thing, you know, in, you know, in Syria. And in Iraq, it, you know, it's one of those third-party extreme groups. It has nothing to do with the Sokoto Caliphate or the people that are there. These are just extremists who went berserk. But from the outside, people would think that Boko Haram is some major force that's there. It's not. It's causing confusion. And, 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 and it may be fueled by other powers as well. Allah knows best. I don't have details. But there's great potential in Nigeria if they can get peace in the land and they can unite and even work together with the Igbos and the Yorubas. Many of the Yorubas are Muslims too, by the way. You know, and um, so, but if they can work together, you know, the sky's the limit for them, uh, because you know it, it is it has great potential in that country. Hmm. How does uh, somebody who's interested in, in the Sheikh and his teachings uh, access his work? Well, um, I have a course that I gave. Uh, which is called uh, African Sunrise. So through the website, hakeemquick.com, uh, you can actually download a course which gives you the background and the references and whatnot. It can start to open up your way and then keep in touch with us on our Facebook page, Instagram and whatnot. And, and, and we will be you know, giving information and letting people know, you know about how to get more in touch with this great scholar. Hmm. And lastly, you talked about being... Uh, very interested in the Sheikh's work in the 1980s. I was born in the 1980s. I won't say in what year. Was I named after the Sheikh? Right. That, that is part. I mean, of course, there's Uthman ibn Affan. Of course. You know, the great Khalifa. Yeah. But really, you know, it is because of my, in a sense, love for Uthman Danfodio that I even gave you the name Uthman. That's right. It's, it's, it's a connection. So, inshallah, you need to lead a delegation. <laughs> You know, to Nigeria yourself, to Sokoto, and, and visit the Sheikh and visit his people, uh, inshallah. And with that, we'll leave it there. Jazakallah, uh, shukran Sheikh, again, and uh, stay tuned for more podcast from HakeemQuick.com. If you are interested in learning more about the Sheikh, there is a course. Just go to HakeemQuick.com and you can find it there. Wassalamu alaikum warahmatullah. Thanks for listening to the Deeper Roots Podcast. This podcast was produced by me, Uthman Quick. The percussion-only audio track is by Jibril Moore. If you'd like to learn more about the work of the Sheikh, take one of his courses, or read one of his books, follow him on Instagram or Facebook, or visit his website at hakeemquick.com.